So welcome to the Unknown Warrior podcast. Very happy to be joined by Catherine White, who's a PhD student uh, studying at Pembroke College, University of Oxford. She holds the college's Julian Shields Scholarship for History, uh, and her research focuses on the social experience of religion for soldiers in the First World War, with a particular emphasis on the YMCA. So thank you, Catherine, for joining us. Thank you for having me. A pleasure, a pleasure. So to begin then, we know that chaplains run through the kind of whole story of the Unknown Warrior, really, and that through our research, you know, we found obviously that we spoke about in previous episodes that Reverend Derby Relton came up with the idea. Uh, another padre, George Standing, was on the team of people that took the bodies that weren't selected back from St. Paul. So chaplains run throughout the story, really. Uh, and then obviously the Unknown Warrior itself becomes an overwhelming kind of religious symbol of international recognition. There's the padre kind of story throughout that. But Kind of leading up to the First World War, what was the chaplain's role and what the, the role did they kind of play within the army before then? Yeah, so there's pretty much always been some level of clergy involved in the army, at least for many centuries before the First World War. The first Anglican chaplains were really with the British Army around the time of the Civil War in the 17th century. And then they then get formulated into the army chaplain's department in 1796. Their role then develops hugely throughout the 19th century and like a lot of things in the armed forces, it very much evolves in relation to wars that go on. So one of the major development points before the First World War is the Crimean War in the 1850s, which the army originally deployed to Crimea with only one chaplain, but this was soon seen not to be enough to support the soldiers, so it was increased to 60 chaplains over the course of the war, which sort of set in motion this progress that led right through to the First World War. There was also development that initially it was only Anglican chaplains, and then throughout the 19th century, this also evolved to include a whole breadth of different denominational chaplains to reflect to the men who were in the army. The chaplains department then go into the First World War. They start with 117 chaplains in the department. And then again, this is a huge change um, throughout the course of the war. And by 1918, there are 3,400 chaplains serving with the British Army across all of the fronts that the British Army are fighting the war on. As you, you know, as you said, their role kind of changed over time and developed over time and then brings us up to the First World War. And then so why were they so important to the soldiers based on the front line during that time? Yeah, so they were able to provide a spiritual connection for soldiers. They helped soldiers largely interpret the war through Christian scripture. So for soldiers they were able to interpret the reasons why it was important to fight, the righteousness of a campaign, and those kind of motivating morale-based ideas. So a lot of the ideas that happened during war centre around Jesus' sacrifice and his crucifixion, and there's lots of ideas of how those teachings of the Bible can then relate to soldiers in helping them to fight and helping them to be good soldiers. It's also a link with home in the sense that there's a lot of tradition associated uh, with the Christian faith. And so for soldiers in an entirely new experience of war, it was that sentimentality of prayers and hymns they heard during their youth, going to Sunday schools, maybe at school church services, things with their parents. It's that kind of Christian development through their life that then continued on once they were in the army. And that kind of link also helped develop the soldiers' morals and give them this moral education, this moral code. It was very much in a language that they understood and based in touchstones that they had familiarity with. So they could relate the lessons of being a good person and being a good soldier with Christian teachings. What was the soldiers' relationship with the chaplains like? So the relationships 
were very mixed, as you can imagine, for such a large organisation. Some men had really good relationships with their chaplains and some men had far worse or less efficient relationships with their chaplains. On the whole, there was a lot of support for them. There's a phrase that gets banded around quite a lot, and I've read it numerous times in my research, where a soldier will say he distrusts religion or he's not Christian, he doesn't believe in God, but he quite likes his padre or he finds his padre very interesting or he thinks they think very highly of the padres that are linked to their battalions. And so what you see time and time again is, especially in soldiers' letters, is sometimes them trying to defend that they're not Christians. They think that that's not kind of what a strong man needs but actually they are taking on board all of the things the chaplains are saying to them and it's that personal relationship with the chaplain that kind of reinvents religion in their minds during the war for those who don't get on so well with their chaplains it can be an issue of class and the chaplains ties the establishment so a lot of the chaplains obviously to be a clergyman they'd been to university they were middle class men for some working class soldiers, they didn't have a particular connection to the chaplain. They weren't able to discuss things and to have that kind of two-way conversation. But then for the chaplains that did have good reputations with the soldiers, a lot of that was based in the charisma or the personality of the chaplain. If a chaplain was very friendly and very open or was a good speaker, those things all really helped the relationships and the effectiveness of a chaplain could be. One of the most effective chaplains during the First World War with one of the biggest reputations is Woodbine Willie, or Geoffrey Ankertil Studdock Kennedy as was his full name, who gets the nickname Woodbine Willie for handing Woodbine cigarettes to soldiers. And this is the thing that quite a few chaplains did, was that they would give cigarettes or matches or bars of chocolate, just those tiny comforts to soldiers, which was a very simple material way of saying, I care for you, I want to help you, I want to comfort you. And as well as that, Woodbine Willie also had an immense gift as a preacher and as a poet and was very much able to get at the emotional core of a soldier that quite often the stiff upper lip of being very guarded and they weren't going to open up at all. An effective chaplain was able to tap into that and kind of get at what was in a soldier's mind. And then on the ground then, whether the soldiers were particularly religious or not, then, you know, how did that kind of work day to day then? Was it like they could go and just kind of have a quiet word with the chaplains, you know, get a bar of chocolate or get, get some tobacco off them or, you know, and hide the fact that maybe they actually wanted to go and have a quite a deep discussion with them, you know, on what might be on their mind or what might be, you know, what they might have seen? It's quite rare reading chaplains' diaries and things for a soldier to openly go and say, I'd like to have a conversation, I'm scared about dying, those kind of big ideas that were really in a soldier's head. And... The great benefit of the system was that the chaplains would serve with a battalion or with a couple of battalions. So they usually had the same person with them throughout. They were able to develop that relationship. And the chaplain would usually as well travel with them and would travel into the trenches with them, would be in the rest billets with them, would go to recreation huts with them. So they were always there. And when the soldiers were having a cup of tea, the chaplain would be there. And so they'd have conversations with them about all manner of things, probably quite a few conversations about how many rats there are or how annoying the lice are, those kind of small conversations that then open up those bigger ones. You mentioned previously as well the fact that there was different religious denominations serving at the front to cater to all of the different religious denominations of the soldiers that were, that were serving. So what different denominations were there serving at the front? 
the way the chaplain's department worked with having different denominations was that it was broadly proportionate to the numbers of soldiers belonging to each denomination. So in their military enlistment papers, they would be asked to write the denomination that they followed. If they weren't sure, if they weren't particularly religious, they didn't have a home church, they would just write Church of England. And that's what they were instructed to write. So the overwhelming majority of chaplains are Church of England, at least for English soldiers. For Scottish soldiers, that would mostly be Presbyterian. For Welsh soldiers, it would mostly be Methodist Calvinists. There were very few atheists, mostly because that language wasn't super well developed. A lot of soldiers, it, they could say they didn't believe in God, but they wouldn't necessarily have known about atheism. So there's very few that say they're not religious. The vast majority have a Christian identity, at least formally. At the peak of the Army Chaplains Department in 1918, there's about 2,000 Church of England chaplains, compared with about 600 Catholics, 300 Presbyterians, and then about 500 of the other non-conformist churches. So that's the different forms of Methodists, the Baptists, the Congregationalists. The British Army also had 14 Jewish chaplains to care for the Jewish soldiers. And their role is slightly different in the sense that Jewish soldiers were always a minority of whatever battalion they were in. It's quite easy if you have an Irish regiment or an Irish battalion to appoint a Catholic chaplain who will, the majority of their soldiers will be Catholic. But for the Jewish chaplains, it was far more legwork of having to organise services behind the lines and then the small pockets of Jewish soldiers could come to them. And so they had a slightly different role. But the idea was, and largely it was borne out, that every denomination that was represented in soldiers was to some extent represented in the chaplains. Are they all volunteers, the chaplains, or is there any form of conscription with regards to, to any actually the individual chaplains' denomination? They are all voluntary. I'm not sure how much arm twisting sort of went on um, within the churches sometimes. But yes, they are all voluntary. There's a small number of chaplains who served with the regular army before the war. There's also territorial chaplains um, who went over with the territorial troops. They were pretty popular because they came from the same communities as their soldiers, at least in the initial stages of the war. So they had those developed relationships and common understandings. And then there's a large number of them who are voluntary recruits, who are recruited by the individual churches and sent to the army chaplains department as a whole. And you mentioned there about the fact that the chaplains are serving with the troops, both on the front line and behind the lines, and they'll you know, be around the battalion as they're moving around different locations and stuff. So what are their overall duties as a chaplain? Yeah, so the King's regulations that set out what a chaplain should do lists two things it's very simplistic that they have to take the compulsory parade service on a sunday and they have to bury the dead which clearly leaves a large proportion of the week where there isn't something they have to do so what the chaplains do is that in addition to those compulsory parade services which are broken up by denomination they will also carry out small prayer services during the week, voluntary communion services at the weekends. A lot of those become ecumenical or interdenominational, particularly for nonconformist Protestants, where they're in smaller groupings. Chaplains will take a non-denominational service to suit a wider majority of the men. They're then also on hand, as we sort of already touched upon, for giving pastoral support for the soldiers for having conversations, for small Bible studies, for small prayer groups, that very much the kind of soft touch, not informal conversations with them. And then they also picked up a couple of duties that the battalions needed. 
So quite often a chaplain would censor the men's letters. So to stop secret information about the war, getting back to the home front, officers or chaplains would have to read a soldier's letter and make sure it didn't give away details of locations or battalion movements or whatever. So quite often that came to the, the chaplain because they were a trusted person. And that also gave the chaplains a real insight into what the soldiers were thinking. That soldiers wouldn't necessarily admit things to a chaplain always, that they might admit to their families. They're still very cautious about what they write, it's still not their true feelings entirely, but it does help the chaplains understand what's going on in the soldiers' minds. Then once a battalion was in battle, a chaplain's role changed again. So they would be working in support of the medical corps. Quite often they'd work as stretcher bearers or they'd be tending to soldiers as they came into a first aid post. And this is where we get quite a few of the really remarkable stories of chaplains, where they are going into no man's land, they are rescuing the wounded, they're tending the wounded in the battlefield because they want to be there for the men at those moments when they most need them, when they don't know if they're going to live or die. And as well as that, for Catholic chaplains in particular, they want to be there to give the last rites to soldiers as they're dying. And chaplains want to be there to hold the hands of the men that they're serving with in those vital moments. Yeah, that's an incredibly difficult position and kind of line to tread really, isn't it? That they're there to support them. And I wonder whether, you know, you might feel as a chaplain there, that even though you're there to support and to, like you say, a number of duties and kind of help you know, medics and all that sort of thing. You, do you think, was, was there anything that you've come across that was like, you know, you could understand them kind of wanting maybe to get involved with fighting kind of element as well? There might be that sort of, as you say, they're kind of not left behind, but they are slightly aside from everything else. And with that kind of view of that, you know, they are an officer and they went to university, all that kind of rubs up against you. Ever. Is there any, you know, anything you've seen on that kind of report, that kind of angle? Yes, definitely. There is some sentiment among some of the chaplains that they feel useless that they are fit and able men, particularly some of the younger chaplains. They're the same age as these men who are going into battle. But chaplains are non-combatant. They're not allowed to carry arms. And so they're not... A lot of them feel like they're not actively contributing to battle. And there are some clergymen who take up arms and who aren't chaplains who serve as ordinary soldiers and as officers because they see that as a better way of having an impact. But for chaplains, it's that figuring out what they can do in a non-combatant way to support their soldiers. And part of that support is to contribute something to the overall running of the unit. You've mentioned there that one of the key roles of the chaplains was to bury the dead. So what role did they physically play within that? Yeah, the straightforward part of it is that as most clergy do, they took the funeral service and prayed over the burial of the soldier. But their role is sort of a lot greater than that as well. Before the Graves Registration Unit and the early beginnings of the Imperial War Graves Commission, they would often keep record of where the burials had happened. They'd find suitable burial grounds and establish those to enable them to be able to pay respects to the dead. And also their role was to support the living, both within the funeral service itself and around soldiers' deaths, particularly after battle, where large numbers of soldiers from a unit may have died. That is that kind of way that they need to tread the line between honouring the dead and also motivating and comforting the living. That life had to continue on so quickly at war, that it's using the right language and the right teachings to support those living soldiers. There was then an additional role that chaplains had as well. And they'd often write a letter of comfort to the families of the men who died, which was super valuable to the mothers and the wives of soldiers who died. 
a lot of it would be quite formulaic, and I've read a lot of these that go on to be published in local newspapers, where they'll say something like, a soldier was killed instantly, he was killed without pain, his friends were there, I was there, we prayed for him. There's a lot of those phrases that may not have actually happened, but it's also unimportant to the family whether those things did or didn't happen. They need that comfort, and coming from the chaplain, that is a huge amount of support to some of the loved ones. Yeah, they need that, as the family, they need that closure. And, you know, as you say, the details are not needed to be known. And so we've kind of touched on this a little bit previously, but obviously we've heard you mention about the letters being written home and the mass amount of denominations of the soldiers that are there. So how just, just how important, again, was religion to the soldiers on the front? As you say, it's that kind of familiar thing that's brought from home almost, isn't it? It keeps them kind of, uh, I don't know, grounded, I suppose. And there's some sort of routine there. There's some familiarity there. Yes, definitely. It's hugely important to soldiers. The kind of challenge for historians like myself is figuring out quite how important and how to measure that importance so kind of one of the easiest ways to measure something is how often a soldier goes to church but that's a really ineffective way to get at actually what a person feels about religion that some don't like structured religion some go to church because they feel like they have to but actually they don't really believe that there's this huge spectrum of faith and understanding of religion that is always present in society and even more so during war So kind of what you have to tease out is whether soldiers are saying, oh, thank God, I pray to God. These phrases that are very much part of common parlance, are they saying them because they're part of the common language or is there a greater meaning and understanding behind them? And I think there is a lot of understanding and the vast majority of people are believing in God in some form. And then the chaplains themselves have to interpret that. And then we, as a secondary source, are trying to look at that and interpret that again. That um, I think is something that's really interesting and how each soldier individually understands that. And a lot of the language that's used is about talking about religious duty and those ideas of how duty to the country and duty to God and duty to the army interrelate. And particularly for Anglican soldiers, that interrelates even more because of the establishment ties between the church and the state. And then there's also ideas of sacrifice and them as soldiers sacrificing themselves for the greater good and for the good of society. And comparisons there are always made with Jesus. And a lot of the language that's used is around the Good Friday story and around Easter as that connection point. And then you also have soldiers who are using religion more as kind of a talisman or a good luck charm. And there's these that are sort of hedging their bets. They think, well, I best go pray just in case God is real, that nothing lost. And that kind of charm of, oh, I've prayed, I've had communion before I've gone into battle, so God will be watching over me. That There's some of these things that are really important for soldiers' morale, even if there isn't a whole lot of complex theology underneath that that it's there as this kind of helping hand, this guardian angel kind of images in soldiers' minds to help them have motivation to actually go into battle and to uphold what's being asked of them as soldiers. That threat of death and observing death as well as such close hand is always going to make you reconsider maybe your relationship with faith and religion, whereas in, in your previous past life, perhaps you might not have considered it important, but... In those situations, you might it might force a change of heart, maybe, in your outlook on how important religion is, maybe. 
Definitely. And I think that definitely happened and it changed how soldiers saw religion. There isn't a huge amount of evidence for soldiers having these great epiphanies and these great conversions. There's some conversions that happen to religion in the face of battle and the face of death, but it's not on a huge scale. And then similarly, there isn't a huge trend of soldiers losing their faith, saying, oh, the world is so awful. How could a God possibly exist? There are these individuals who felt that, but in neither direction is there a big shift or an identifiable shift in religious belonging or religious understanding before or after the war. Yeah, that, that thought was just going through my mind as you said that then. Yeah, that's really interesting, isn't it? Because you would think that reality of being there and the things that people saw, it would kind of make, you would think it would kind of polarise in a way that, as you say, you know, you'd either go, well, this, you know, how possibly can there be a, a God if all this is happening and I'm in the middle of it? Or, you know, you go the other way and go, well, I'll be safe because because I believe in God and, I'm, you know, etc. But, but yeah, it's really interesting why that polarising didn't really happen and everyone just ended up kind of, you know, there wasn't that run to either side. It's really interesting. I think kind of there's also a long-term impact of it. So in the short term, during the war, there's a lot of people who are asking those questions, who have those thoughts going through their mind. But I think when we're looking at the longer-term trend post-war of what happens, is is the important thing to remember that, they won the war. The war did end and life did go on. A lot of men were incredibly hurt and life was incredibly changed by the war, but it wasn't the apocalypse that possibly it looked like in 1917. And I think that also has something in shaping those trends later on. You talked about a lot of the chaplains being used as a, as a secondary role, as, as medical support and going out into the front lines and helping soldiers bring them back. There's quite a few chaplains that won a number of military awards and medals for their bravery wasn't there throughout the war yes so and as you say a lot of these chaplains who win their medals it's because of their work with the medical corps and in support of wounded soldiers so there are three chaplains who win the victoria cross the highest award for bravery in the british army the second highest award the distinguished service order about 70 chaplains win and then the third rank the military cross about 500 chaplains win so out of the three and a half thousand men that there are at full strength in the department, 500 winning a military cross is quite a large proportion. And a lot of that comes from the fact that they are unarmed and they are putting themselves in harm's way during battle. Possibly the most notable of the chaplains in this regard is Theodore Hardy, who won all three of the Bravery Awards. He was 53 when he joined the Army Chaplains Department in 1916, and he'd initially, at the start of the war, been rejected for service because he was over 50, and he was considered too old. But then, as they needed more chaplains, they were happy to take a willing volunteer like him. And he won his Distinguished Service Order as his first of the Bravery Awards in the Third Battle of Ypres in 1917 for helping a man stuck in the mud. Someone had got caught in no man's land in the mud Eventually, they would suffocate and drown, and Hardy stayed with him, holding his hand, talking to him, praying with him until he died. And then Hardy went back behind the lines. And kind of an interesting note in this as well is Hardy himself was injured. He'd broken his wrist, which is a minor injury when you're faced with someone who is dying, but it's still a significant thing that he put himself in that harm's way to be there for the soldiers. And then kind of very soon after he wins the DSO, he wins his military cross for helping to evacuate wounded men under bombardment in battle in Ypres. So he's kind of, even though he's been injured, he's seen firsthand how brutal it can be, he's still committed to helping soldiers and entering battle. 
And then this leads to um, him winning the Victoria Cross in April 1918. At this time, his battalions in the 37th Division were at Rosignol Wood on the Somme at the start of the German Spring Offensive. And his Victoria Cross citation speaks of several acts of bravery over the few days of battle. And one of them in particular is that he tended to a wounded officer who was injured 10 yards from a German machine gun fortification. So they were directly under threat and they could have both been killed. They could have both been captured, but he was there for him at the time. And kind of the sad end to Hardy's story is that he became seriously wounded in October 1918 and he later died in Rouen at a military hospital. But I think kind of his is a really important story that encapsulates a lot of what a lot of chaplains did of where they dedicated themselves to their troops. But his is certainly a remarkable story of the levels and the extent that he went to to help his soldiers. Yeah, that is an incredibly brave guy. I think it's uh, it's pretty clear there from what he went through and the wars that he got. The Christmas truce has become synonymous, really, with this sort of hope in the despair of war and, and bringing different combatants together, and it's kind of become a symbol of that. You know, how did soldiers mark important religious festivals throughout the conflict? Because you're, you know, you're in, you're stuck in the trenches, but you're trying to still celebrate Christmas and, and Easter and these these important festivals that remind you of home. Yes, definitely. And I think kind of the Christmas truce has become as you say, the symbol for that, especially for us in the 21st century, we see it as the symbol. When in actual fact, it wasn't really something that happened or at least happened on a wide level in the First World War. But what it symbolises is that spirit of caring and that spirit of humanity against the odds in the war. A lot of the time, the celebrations of Christmas and Easter were pretty muted. If you were in the trenches, there was very little you could do. There were local ceasefires in a lot of places where possible, but also under immense threat, they had to continue to fight and they had to continue to defend themselves. But a chaplain would have been there giving them Christmas wishes, Christmas prayers, and they also would have received Christmas presents from home and from charitable organisations. Where they were behind the lines, there were big church services and there were homely traditions. So soldiers would try and decorate Christmas trees and have presents and do fun games to whatever extent they were able to from what they could scrape together locally. And the chaplain would be there to lead the prayers and to lead the carol singing usually. Chaplains and soldiers both loved a good sing song um, and there's a few popular hymns that they always come back to and are always written in letters and diaries that the soldiers would respond really well to. Easter is kind of, at least in the chaplain story, has a much deeper significance than Christmas, particularly in the way that they're fighting the First World War because in connecting with soldiers and connecting them to simple ideas of Christianity, the Easter story of Jesus' sacrifice for humanity and then his resurrection and the promise of salvation is so important in helping soldiers understand why they are in the situation that they're in and in helping them to understand that death isn't the end of life, that they will then go on to heaven, that those ideas are really important. So there's a lot of talk about the Easter story throughout the year. And one of the most popular hymns that chaplains say that they use in their services repeatedly is When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, which is about Good Friday. So that becomes very much the focus of wartime religion. So Easter is the pinnacle of that when they're able to tell these stories in full. In helping soldiers to fully celebrate these things, say then the chaplains will then work with charitable organisations like the Church Army and the YMCA 
who have the resources to be able to put on bigger celebrations, bigger services, concerts, and that sort of thing. I mean, that brings us on nicely to your focus of your own research, really. So your research is looking at the work specifically of the YMCA during the First World War. So what was their kind of role then? Yes, the YMCA ran approximately 5,000 recreation huts across both the home front and the active fronts of the war. Basically, these recreation huts were temporary structures, usually a wooden army hut, but it could also be a marquee, a dugout, various things in different places. And it served as a place where soldiers could get refreshments, entertainments, and education. So at their most basic, they were a tea counter where they were able to get free or cheap cups of tea and cocoa. They were able to purchase cakes, sandwiches. They always talk about how many boiled eggs they serve as well. There's thousands of those are served everywhere. They were also able to purchase simple things like matches and chocolate. And they're able then to sit in a space that the idea is that it is as much of a home for soldiers as they're able to have while at war. So they're able to sit and they're able to write letters home on paper that is provided by the YMCA. And they're able to read from the libraries, there's magazines, there's games that they can play with friends. In the slightly larger YMCA huts, there's entertainments. So they have so many concerts and touring bands and singing groups, and they have cinema shows. The YMCA are really at the forefront of developing cinema on a mass scale and entertainments like that that could take men's minds off of the war in an evening for a couple of hours. And then there's also their educational and spiritual work. So they had lectures and classes on different languages based on wherever they were. So soldiers could learn French, they could learn Arabic, they could have scientific lectures from lecturers that were taken from universities in the UK Um, University of Cambridge and the University of Oxford both have programmes of sending out lecturers to YMCA huts in the later years of the war to give soldiers some mental stimulation and something to think about that can also help educate them towards something that they're going to do after the war and to interest them in things that can motivate them once they are no longer soldiers. And then as they are a Christian organisation, there's then also the fellowship groups, the Bible reading groups, And they're able to use their concert venues as churches and chapels, which on a Sunday, the chaplains are then able to come and use for either denominational services or interdenominational services, as that's one of the really big benefits of the YMCA is that they're an interdenominational organisation. So their commitment is to serve all men of all faiths and none. And clearly they want to introduce them to a Christian environment, to Christian morality, but it's not in a proselytizing, preachy way. So it's a Christianized space to which all men are welcome. And I think that's one of the real benefits of the YMCA is that they are teaching a very pragmatic Christianity that isn't doctrinal and it's not detailed theology. It is simple and understandable and is really helping the soldiers in the moment. As you say, it must have just been such a, a very welcome distraction from, you know, life on the front line. You know, it must have just been a, a, a break for whatever your denomination, whatever activity, whatever service you went to. It was just, you know, to, to break the break the cycle of it all, I suppose. Yes, definitely. And when, a so- when soldiers are out of the trenches, a lot of the time what they complain about is boredom. And soldiers, they're young men without too many commitments and under immense stress, a lot of the time they want to go to the pub. There's a lot of brothels that are opened for soldiers to go to. And so what the YMCA are doing is providing a moralised alternative to that. So they don't serve alcohol and they are this very Christian moralised space. And the idea of it is to 
give soldiers a distraction and a diversion from the war, but one that will be good for them. And their commitment is to the mind, body and spirit of soldiers. And that's kind of the phrase that's used repeatedly and is what their triangle emblem symbolises, is those three sides that all interrelate. And a soldier needs all of those things to become a healthy, happy and motivated soldier. I suppose many people wouldn't wouldn't know that the YMCA had played such an important role in helping soldiers in the First World War. So obviously that, that makes your research even more important, really, to highlight these little-known areas of the war and of the story of what it was actually like to be a soldier fighting on the front. Definitely, yes. So I started my research in this area on looking at the chaplains. But then as I was reading their diaries and their letters and the published things by the chaplains department, what came up time and time again was the YMCA. But there's nothing that super focuses on their work. So what I found is that very much they influence so many different areas and they're mentioned fleetingly in so many different sources. And it's just trying to bring that all together to tell that story of the non-fighting side of the war. And the YMCA aren't the only people who are doing this kind of work. So there's also the Church Army that are part of the Church of England. There's the Salvation Army who technically are their own denomination. And there's also Talbot House, which many listeners may have heard of, um, which the chaplain Tubby Clayton ran in Popringa near Epe. And they were working to the same similar idea of social religion. And so that's really what my research is trying to sort of get at and shed more light on. And chaplains are still serving with the armed forces today and play an important role in the religious support of soldiers serving on the front line today. Yes, they are. And they still deploy everywhere that the British Army deploys. And they are still there for soldiers whenever they need them. And they still have the responsibility for the services, for the ceremonies, for funerals, although fortuitously less so than during the First World War. They also do the reburials of First World War remains as they are found. But one of the biggest areas for chaplains today is in the pastoral support and that spiritual and that kind of individual care for soldiers while they are in the army. And I think kind of the shift that we see during the First World War where that informal work becomes more important Today, it is even more important and the formalised things slightly less so. It's an absolutely fascinating conversation we've had today. And obviously, it's more important, like you say, if a, if a chaplain's writing home to soldiers or at least if they were buried at one point and the grave is lost because of all of the hundreds of thousands of unknowns that, that resulted in the First World War, at least if the family had a, a letter from a chaplain or from somebody that were able to provide comfort, that then would become so important to them if they didn't have that that grave to go to so obviously they're such an important part within the story yes really would Catherine, thank you so much for providing your time today and talking us through this absolutely fascinating and a little looked at area of the first world war and i hope that your research into the ymca continues and uh, that you're able to find loads of more fascinating golden nuggets of information so uh, thank you for taking your time today to talk to us thank you it's been really good